Hello, everyone. This is Mark. And right before we start our show, I want to pause for a second to say thank you to all of you who pre-ordered my new book before it was published. Because of you, it came out as an Amazon number one new release, which goes to show that the world really is ready to lead from the heart. And while I may never meet you, I very much want you to know how profoundly grateful I am to you. You helped me get off to the start that I had dreamed of. And if you haven't yet bought yourself a copy, please take a look at the reviews on Amazon. They're all quite wonderful. And if you have a team of workplace managers working for you, please consider getting them a copy too. I'm also excited that the business media is already embracing the new book. Training Magazine, HR.com, Chief Executive Magazine, and the CEO World Magazines and others have all featured content in it. Stanford University's Social Innovation Review has just run a large excerpt, and Microsoft will be featuring me in a leadership development article this month. And speaking of articles, I have a new one coming out on Labor Day in Fast Company Magazine. That's Monday, September 5th. So please look for that. And it's great to gain all this confirmation and confirmation for the work of all the guests that I've been honored to bring you. So once again, listeners, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you've been a listener to our show for a while, you know that all of the nearly 100 guests we've had on so far have been handpicked, and handpicked because their work, in a truly meaningful way, has offered new dimension to our understanding of how to effectively lead with greater balance of mind and heart. And almost every time, I've personally asked them to be a guest rather than them asking me. But an interesting thing happened when it came to inviting today's guest, two business school professors from two different top MBA programs tweeted me on the same day to urge me to have Tiffany Bova on as a guest. And their recommendations were so solid and passionate, I honestly just took them at their word and invited Tiffany to join me. I'm rather pleased that I trusted my intuition on this because Tiffany proved to be a perfect fit. If you're not familiar with her, Tiffany Bova is the global growth evangelist at Salesforce, who works directly for Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business. She's been named to the latest Thinkers 50 list of the world's top management thinkers. Along with Columbia University and Stanford University, Bova recently authored a study which analyzed data from a thousand brick and mortar stores of a major American retailer. Which retailer? Walmart? Target? I tried to get it out of her as you're going to hear, but she confirmed she simply can't reveal which one. Nevertheless, I'm almost certain it's one of these two companies they studied, and the research proved what most of us have always suspected that there's a causal relationship between employee satisfaction and well-being and the revenues that each store produces. Tiffany and her fellow researchers not only found that stores that, quote, did the employee experience well, unquote, elevated revenue, store revenue per hour actually increased by a full 50%. So Boba's confirming conclusion is that when leaders focus on employee satisfaction in the most sincerest of ways, it produces hard financials, not soft stuff. So our conversation digs into her research study and its guidance to all managers who lead frontline teams, 
how you treat them truly does affect the bottom line for better or worse. And you know I'm recording this afterwards, but I did introduce her by saying, welcome to the podcast, Tiffany Bova. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm thrilled to have you, and I want to get right into it. I've been really looking forward to our conversation, particularly a couple of questions a little bit later on. But starting with the first one, you were one of the authors of a study which analyzed employee and financial data from like thousand brick-and-mortar stores of a major retailer. So that kind of limits who it might be. And the name of the retailer was kept anonymous. But since there aren't that many American companies with over a thousand outlets, I'm kind of thinking it's probably Walmart or Amazon or Target. You don't have to tell me unless I can pry it out of you. But what you were able to prove is that there's a causal relationship between employee satisfaction and well-being and the revenues individual stores produce. So give us a synopsis of the study. Tell us the name of the company if you want. And then tell us the full implication to leadership and HR and most of all to from my point of view, retail's long history of exploiting employees and being indifferent to whether they remain with the company long-term or not. Yeah, well, first, thank you for calling out the study. No, I'm not going to share the name. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But it was sort of this journey. I had this hypothesis a number of years back, and this won't be anything new to you or to your listeners, but, you know, I didn't think it was a coincidence that Salesforce is a great place to work. It's one of the the number one or top five in the world. It's one of the most innovative companies. It's the fastest growing enterprise software company. I mean, I thought that there was some connection. So I went to our CMO at the time and I said, hey, I really want to try to prove out this causation. So we started with a U.S. only study and looked at kind of like ENPS stores, customer satisfaction, NPS, growth rates across S&P and the NASDAQ and Glassdoor ratings and all those things. And we found that those that did employee experience well had a much higher customer experience. Once again, no surprise. But then we found the causation of 1.8x better revenue. And so for a billion-dollar brand, it was a $40 million impact. And within that, it was sort of like, well, geez, (laughs) this is sort of obvious. You know, why hadn't anybody really sort of tied back the causation? I think it was hard to get your hands on sort of doing something at scale. But once we knew that we were on to something, we decided to do this global study, which which what you were just mentioning was part of. And we went out and interviewed the C-suite leaders and then employees. But then we had this secondary primary research that we did in partnership with Columbia and Stanford on this particular retailer to look at one individual company and follow what they did from employee satisfaction, tools, technology they use, training, onboarding, all of those types of things that lend themselves to a better employee experience said if they could improve those things, could we see meaningful revenue per employee improvement at the store level? And that's what you sort of were just highlighting. They found it was a 50% improvement, 5-0. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like $40 an hour that those employees were generating. And now they were at like $76 or $78 an hour, right? It was, it was significant. So in that scenario, we could show that if you focused at that employee layer, um, that it can actually produce financial results, not just the soft stuff that I think many people get caught up in, but really hard financials. Okay, so first question is a binary one. You had the company's permission to do this, right? So they knew you were doing this, you weren't 
surreptitiously getting this information. They wanted you to be involved in this study, correct? Yes. And so to be clear, it was a study that was going on with Columbia and Stanford before we showed up. Okay. That's fine. But at least you, yeah. at least we know that they were involved. And in, so I, I have a question related to, you know, what have they done with the information since? But you've used a couple of words here that that aren't true in the sense that it is a surprise because companies have sort of had plenty of suggestion that this might be true and haven't really been motivated to test it themselves. So it's not obvious to business. Even if in the presence of studies, I don't know any retailer that I could guess that might be the one that you focused on that has demonstrated that they have pivoted in the direction of the findings of your study. Well, I'd say this. When I say it's obvious, let's go back. Herb Kelleher said it. Richard Branson has said it. Former CEO of Costco has said it. Like, but it's obvious to them. But, but I'm just saying that it's not like it's a new statement. You know, so that sort of the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. That's something I said. And that when I say that to people, they go, well, that's, of course, duh. But to your point, Mark, it's like what we found in the study, not that retail one, but the larger one we did globally was, number one, no one owned employee experience. HR has talent management. But I'm talking about this experience of what it's like to work here. What are the tools I use? What's the career path development? What's the investments in me in learning? Do I feel my voice is heard? You know, those kinds of things, kind of the experience level, not the we have 10 open recs. We hear our candidates. Here's how to hire better. Make sure that we meet these requirements. Really thinking about experience. So number one, nobody was owning employee experience. Number two, companies were surveying and capturing lots of data about employee, but then not doing anything with it. They didn't know what to do with it. Once they captured it, they didn't know what to do with it. So to your point, right, Mark, it's like, well, okay, I know this. I might even have the survey data, but I don't know what to do with it. So no one owns it. (laughs) No one knows what to do with the data. And then the last thing I'd say that kind of triangulates the problem is that the C-suite is like, of course, employees are important to us. Of course, you're very important to us. You're important to the company, to me personally as an executive, of course. And then out of the other side of their mouth, it's, but it's customers above all else. Mm -hmm. So there's this tension between this, which is more important, employee or customer. And I think that that's the wrong question. It is an and play, Mm -hmm. number one. And number two, the same level of effort that has gone into shoring up the experience your customers have, we have to do the same for employees. And that's why the great resignation should not be a surprise to anybody. <laughs> because I'm with you on that. We've I mean, been ignoring it. I'm completely in agreement with you on that. And so my question relates now to the company that you studied. So you've presented this to them. It's conclusive. They're refutable. And of course... They embraced it and took immediate action. Is that what happened? No, it was a little bit of reverse. So two things, as I was saying. I was kidding, to be honest. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Well, well, so the good news is really in reality, in all fairness, they were doing it before we showed up. This activity and that investment on the employee side was happening. It was a study that was happening. We kicked off our global study. We found out that Stanford and Columbia were doing this study. We said, hey, we want to be a part of this. And we want it to be part of our larger work. And that's how it happened. So it's not like they heard our research, they went and actioned it, and this is what they saw. They understood that they had an opportunity. There was a problem. They started making investments, small ones. They started to see slight improvement. So they kept investing and investing. And they got to a point where they got to that 50% mark. 
And we were doing research on the sort of on the more global basis, you know, all companies, B2B, B2C and retail, C-suite and employees to understand the gap and disconnect between those two constituencies as it related to this experience conversation. So what did they do specifically to get to the 50%? Because the hurdle that you just described is that the CEO said, yeah, this is all very good, but we have our customer and we have to take care of them first. And then the spoils go to them. And then if we have enough time, we'll get back to the employees. Thank you for the research. That's kind of what I'm hearing. But then you said, no, they actually took action to get to the 50%. So Somewhere along the line, the CEO was persuaded that they needed to do exactly what you're prescribing. So what did they do? Yeah, so some of it was around skills, right? You have obvious, like, just think about, okay, I'm a new hire and I show up and I'm at, you're, you know, you're focused on retail in this particular conversation. I show up at a retailer, but then I haven't been trained of how do I use the iPad on the floor maybe? Where do I go and find information about is a product available or not available? How do I order for the customer who's standing in front of me when we don't have something in stock? How do I allow them to order in the store and ship to their house? You know, those kinds of things. Like if I'm not trained and the customer's standing in front of me, the customer gets frustrated, the employee is embarrassed or is spending three, four, five times as much effort and time on satisfying that need from the customer than they would have had the employer provided the appropriate training for that employee before they ever hit the floor. I'm just going to use that as one. Make sense? Okay, that's very practical. Did they do anything from a leadership standpoint in terms of teaching the managers how to manage people in a different way, in a more caring and supportive way. Yeah, and I think you're right. First of all, that's sort of, it has to start at the way tippy-tippy top, right? Like you said, like the CEO has to be like, yes, this is what we're going to do. Then it kind of makes it down to the frontline individual contributor. Okay, frontline contributor, here's what we're going to do to improve these things. And then you have that middle management that is trapped between the My upstream is asking me to do one thing. My downstream is asking me to do something completely different. And so the effort and training and reskilling at that management layer, I think, is one of the most important things in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You nailed it. I mean, this is an area where sometimes it's the Peter principle, the race, the level of incompetence. I was really good as an individual contributor. And so I earned the right to be a manager and I have no idea how to do that or I have no business doing that. <laughs> and so I need the support as well. And, and to be really clear, this was about customer facing employees and how they play this central role in this experience, right? It's really at that connection between employee and customer, not just employee all up, but I understand your question. Yes, management at that middle layer absolutely requires allowing managers to have more information around data, financial data, training, coaching, onboarding of new employees, team building, collaboration, all those things play a huge part. So you just said something interesting in the midst of other interesting things that there's this tension, particularly at the middle manager level. And having once been at that level, I remember that Your subordinates, that's a traditional business language, but the people who work for you are demanding certain kinds of treatment. And then you've got management that ignores that. Senior management is strictly about where are you on this goal? 
and they're not on how are you developing this person and what are your engagement strategies and how are you keeping your team happy and how are you promoting people so that you know we keep the talent here all those kinds of questions those aren't the questions that senior managers ask what they're asking is is when will you have this how much more than what you were expected will you have and what are you going to do about it if you're not hitting those numbers or whatever those goals are numbers being generic and so my experience is that almost universally my peers said all right so do i look up or do i look down and they always looked up they always got into the where are you on this as opposed to all the things you were just outlining the coaching the creating an emotionally and psychologically safe environment and really investing in people so that they had a career aspiration that they could actually achieve it in the company and all those kinds of things. It doesn't exist in so many companies because of the pressure from the top. So how do you get the top to back off on being so demanding about one thing that they lose sight of the thing that the people want the most? Such a great question, Mark. Such a great question, because I think that this is where this approach to if you're listening to this and you maybe have a retention problem right now or you have a recruitment problem right now, uncovering why that is happening will hopefully provide the signals to leadership as to the things that need to be done. And I'll give you one sort of insight into some of that research that may tie us back to this is when we were looking for the clear link between the employees and the revenue, right, going back to the impact of the 50% we were talking about, right, stores whose customer-facing employees base was more tenured and had more experience, kind of were higher skilled, if you were, was more skewed towards the full-time generated more sales per hour. So if you think about that, right, part-time employees work one day a week while it really helps you in having someone on the floor, right, when talent is tough or you can't recruit and maintain employees, it's very disruptive to those around the other people who work there. Mm -hmm. So in the other study we had, the number one, tied for number one thing that employees said was holding them back for growth was the loss of sort of co-workers, Like it's disruptive. Like I liked working with them. They're not here anymore. And Gallup has research that says like your best friend, like if you have a best friend at work, you're far more engaged. Like sometimes it's just that basic where if it's more tenured. So if you start to ask the right questions, you start looking at different metrics. The goal would be that it opens the eyes that it isn't just sort of traffic per hour, revenue per head, you know, managing from a spreadsheet because that's easy. That's easy. It's the soft stuff that's hard, right? Well, yeah. and But it's also hard because for a totally different reason. I mean, it's hard to implement because we don't cultivate these skills. And so a lot of times the people that we put into management roles, they've never been expected to have them. And so they haven't cultivated them. But on top of that, at the very senior levels of the organization, they're not valued. Like you're not getting recognized for being the most caring manager or demonstrating empathy and compassion. There's no there's no rewards in any company for those kinds of things. And yet they're drivers of performance. If you really want to boil it down, people feel supported. It's a feeling thing. And in the absence of a manager that gives that to you, you're just not going to see that level of performance. 
But at the top, we're not saying to managers, hey, this is a skill set you really need to cultivate. And we need to honor you for developing it and demonstrating it to people because we believe in it. So I guess that's sort of this vicious circle, because I imagine we could very well be having this conversation 10 years ago and say, remember, you know, we were talking about this and companies still haven't made the change. Do you have any reason to think that this time is different? I do because of the pandemic. Listen, I was part of the team prior to joining Salesforce. I was a research fellow at Gartner and Mm -hmm. covered sort of sales transformation. And I was part of the team that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more on tech than the CIO. And it was like we had five heads when we said that. And the reason we said it was because we believed customer experience was going to be the next battleground. We knew that brands, you started to see a lot of sameness in products and services. And so the experience they had was going to be the differentiating factor. Over time, that experience has become commonplace and people are having to consistently evolve and innovate. I'm applying that same thinking to employee that what has happened through the pandemic is it's shined a spotlight on the lack of investment that's happened around coaching and training, not only at the employee level, to your point, Mark, at middle managers level, that the same kind of aha moment executives had around, oh, it isn't our products and services. We're not a product-led company. We're going to be a customer-led company. That transition happened. It took, let's say, 15 years. Billions are being spent on customer experience. Billions has been realized from competitive improvement there. And I feel like the pandemic has now cracked open the lack of investment on the employee side because the amount of effort customers have to make now has lowered. Their experience has increased. The amount of effort on the employee side has increased and their experience has decreased. It's been in complete opposite of the customer. So, okay, if you have tenured, well-trained, highly supported workers, and we know that they make this huge difference based on your research and others, to the bottom line, no less. So it's not touchy-feely. So is there any evidence that this is going to make any significant change to how organizations lead and manage? So you said... It's the pandemic that is the unifier here. It's the pandemic that is the influencer or the catalyst for the kind of change, which of course, pandemic also incorporates the Great Recession where millions of people are quitting and looking for new jobs and desperate to get away from bad bosses and bad companies and bad organizations. When I say bad organizations, I simply mean places where people woke up during the pandemic and just said, I can't do this anymore. This is life-sucking for me, killing my spirit to go there every day, and I'm not going to do it. So are we learning? Are we at that, that moment? Well, I would say I always look to a few signals. So the number of times employee experience and some of these key words and terms we've been using on this podcast thus far were mentioned in earnings calls over the last three or four quarters is like 40x what it used to be. Mm. You know what I mean? Like people weren't talking about it. So going back to what I was saying, it used to be, well, we're very focused on the customer and their experience. I'm trying to correlate the two, right? Because I feel like we're about to go on the same journey. And from our secondary research, we found it was sort of five levers. It was empowering and protecting employee voice. So we'll just go back to what our employees looking for. Mm-hmm, great. Prioritizing EX at the highest level of the C-suite. Right now, it's been about not the employee, hence why people are going, I'm not doing this anymore. It's soul sucking. <laughs> Third is employees feel valued and core to the company vision. Fourth is empowering career paths and promoting recognition. And fifth is ensuring seamless tech. So now if we boiled all of our findings around the global research, where, like I said, we did C-suite and employees, the gap was biggest in tech. 
Seamless tech was the largest gap, meaning everything I do as an employee is tech enabled now at this point. And it's a horrible experience and it's soul sucking. Yeah. <laughs> right? To use your words, right? Like the average enterprise has 900 apps, only 29% of them are integrated. Who has to navigate that because they're not integrated? Employees. Why does it take me 90 minutes to do something at work when personally I can do it in three minutes? Like it's this very deep valley between the two. But now if I go back to what I was saying, if you listen to CEOs and listen to what they're saying, you will hear some thread of one of those five being talked about now. We're all about career path, right? We're all about empowerment. We want to listen to our employees' voice. We're modernizing the technology we're giving to them. They're starting to use these things. So they may not be focused, Mark, on all five simultaneously, but we're definitely seeing them lean into one or two of the five right now. So my experience, it's interesting because I don't often ring my own plug bell, but separate from the technology component, the first four that you listed were essentially my prescription 11 years ago when my book first came out. And education said, this is the future, you're exactly right. And they embraced it. And there were other industries, but business itself thought, like, he's got to be crazy. Like, there's something wrong with him. He doesn't understand business. He's a spiritualist. He's a religious nut. You don't have to care about people. You don't have to nurture them. That's complete crap. And so I knew that it was right at the time. But I also knew that the business world wasn't going to be, like, throwing me a parade for the insight because of the resistance to these kinds of things because we've never believed that these things were important. In fact, we've always believed that they were sort of counterproductive, that you care for somebody and then you can't give them the bad news when they aren't performing well. And so you don't have that kind of a personal relationship, all these kinds of things. And I used to think, you know, there's going to be this moment in time where there's just going to be this grand epiphany where we're all going to realize that this was the truth all along. And I was right on that prediction. What I never could have predicted was that we have a global pandemic that would be the change of consciousness catalyst. Absolutely. And I feel the same way about customer experience. I was you on that side of the fence, right? Talking about it, you need to shift from product centric to customer centric. They were like, absolutely no way. Our products are the greatest. I'm like, great. Like, okay. I'm telling you, it's going to become even. They're like, no way. And then there were things that made that happen over time. But just to say why, you know, going back to you asking what I think it is, while I'm thrilled that the conversation has now elevated that there isn't one day that goes by that I don't talk about this at this point. But if you look across this shift, Edelman has a study that they do where companies will rank what is the most important to a company's long-term success. And over the last decade, it was customers were number one. This was the first time in that period of time, employees out sort of ranked customer. First time ever. So I would say that of all the horribleness that came out of the pandemic, this conversation about employee valuing them, giving them the same level of attention you've given customers, all the things we've just been discussing, if that's what it needed and the great resignation, I call the great reflection, right? People are reflecting on, I'm just not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to go find some place where I'm heard, I'm valued, I'm paid fairly, give me a living wage. You see everyone increasing their hourly wages and saying, aren't we wonderful? It's like, well, God, you haven't been paying people well for so long. Yeah, good. Good on you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's like, oh, we're now finally investing in training. Okay, great. What have you been doing? Where have you been? Yeah, where have you been? So 
it's wonderful, right? Leading from the heart, having these very emotionally generated conversations, you're right, were never happening in the boardroom in the C-suite. They most definitely weren't happening on Jim Cramer, you know, about purpose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. purpose or, for profit, you know, you know yeah. or, you know, business is the greatest platform for change, or even looking at the business roundtable, ESGs, like we are having very different conversations in the last five years than we'd have in, you know, decades before that. And I think that's a good thing. And I think employee, this conversation around employee was long overdue. I totally agree with you. I happen to believe that the uh, great reflection happened concurrent with the pandemic and that led people to the epiphany of I can't stay, I can't, I got to go. But we're totally aligned on that. And, you know, something you said much earlier that I want to pinpoint that I think is really important. There are people who I think if you ask people, you know, what would Mark say? Not that anybody ever does, but in the event that that ever occurred, they would say, oh, he's a people first person. Like he would be advocating for that. And the funny thing is I'm not. I'm advocating for their equal place at the table. So you can't stop focusing on the customer. You can't take away and you just give equal attention to the employees and make sure that they feel no less valuable than the people they're serving. And that's how you win. And no one else has made that point. So I wanted to call that out. So bravo to you. Yeah. And I would tell you that that was so well said, Mark. That was so well said because that was that stat I gave sort of a little bit ago where I said that while executives are saying employees are important eight out of 10 or just like it's the customer above all else. So there's this tension to your point that people have to pick instead of going, hold on a second. Like I just, if you just for a moment, right, can think what I was saying about that effort and experience comment, first industrial revolution, second, third, we were all about right automation, reducing effort for the employee, all in the name of increasing productivity and output. And then sort of the digital transformation, fourth industrial revolution happens, turn of the 21st century. And then it became all about the customer. Like then it was, now we're going to move from being product led to customer led. And the effort went down for the customer experience went up. And like I said, the effort went up for the employee and the experience went down and no one sort of gave any real credence to that or was potentially to your point outside of Mark paying attention. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, no one else was paying attention. And so you know, I think that now what's challenging is where to begin. So when I sort of share this research and I've done it now to hundreds of, of CEOs around the world and roundtables and keynotes and et cetera, is they look at me and go, where do I begin? Okay, well, I actually want to go into that with you, but I want you Let's to frame go. it up in terms of something that you and I talked about once before, independent of this conversation, which is human resources and what their role in this is. Yep. And I'm going to give you the whole shotgun question, and then I want you to just go from there. Start with, so you talked earlier about having a person in charge of the employee experience, like somebody who owns it and makes sure that it works. My experience with that is that when you have a czar for anything, that they rarely have any influence in teeth because nobody works for them. And so it becomes a tattletale thing. You go back to the CEO and say, hey, the guy in you know California isn't supporting us. And then the CEO has to get on the phone instead of putting the responsibility where I happen to believe it belongs, which is at the line level. 
So you teach your managers, these are the skills that we want, and then you hold managers accountable for those behaviors. And you can still have somebody who's monitoring this and, you know, sort of guiding people. But rather than have them be in charge, they would be a consultant to you as opposed to they're the one who owns it, whether it happens or not, because that's my opinion. But I also want to know, what's the future for human resources? We have a lot of HR people listening to this. So what should they know about what they should be doing to drive the future we need? So great question. And it's, you know, I'm in the middle of writing a book on this very topic. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the answer to that, because I want people who are listening to hear me say, I am not advocating for a new role at the C-suite, not what I'm doing. When I say own, this has to be a team effort. So I'm going to give an example. I was doing a roundtable. It was a publicly traded software company, very large. In their corporate vision, people, employees was mentioned in their you know vision. They were very, very focused on it. I asked the chief human resource officer of this organization, who do you think owns employee experience? And she said back to me the following. She said, well, if it's on the talent side, I think people would ultimately say me. But based on what you've just described, like seamless tech is really the most painful part of it. It's a disconnection. I don't have anything to do with that. She's like, you know, learning, training, enablement, career pathing, let's just say learning. She's like, I don't have a whole lot to do with that either. Like there are, you know, the CIO owns tech and then there's a, you know, learning management person who owns, you know, the curriculums. And it was all these disparate people basically was the bottom line. She goes, so Nobody really owns it. And I go, it's okay, because I'm not saying somebody, to your point, Mark, has to own it. But I would say now that we've just talked about the five things that people say is the biggest pain point, and if I highlighted the number ones across the C-suite and the employees of what's holding their company back for growth, there was eight things we found. I'd say start there. Who is the owner of fixing those pain points? So number one for employee, tied for number one was seamless tech. Number six for the C-suite with seamless tech. So big disconnect, right? I mean, C-suite thinks we're all good. Employees go, yeah, we're not good. So I said to her, how often do you sit down with the CIO? Because they were large enough to have a CIO, right? So how often do you sit down with the CIO and talk about the tools deployed to employees? We do employee surveys. And by the way, they do them quarterly and they started doing them monthly. Not one time did they ever ask about the technology that they use. How happy are you with that? Hmm. How much did that lend itself to you not being satisfied at work? Never even ask the question. And they're a tech provider. So just that simple action, right? She's like, I need to do that. (laughs) Because if we've got a retention problem, and that's the number one thing they're saying, and I have no line of sight in it. And for sure, our CIO is just, you know, he's not only keeping the lights on, but he's making sure we're developing the products right if they were going out the door for our customers. But I don't know how much time he's spending on making sure that the tools and the systems that our employees have when that's where they live all day, right? All day. Just that one example. So I would say as an HR leader listening, understanding what are the drivers of why People are dissatisfied. So an ENPS survey, ask a question about tech, ask a question about training, ask a question about management. Are they supporting your career development? The things Mark was saying, and I've said, ask those questions in an ENPS, very quick survey, understand what it is and start actioning it. You may find, to Mark's point, that there are some leaders who have teams that are much better than other, right? And so is it a manager that's doing it? What are they doing? How do we replicate it? Is it an individual problem? 
But blanket surveys hide those little subtleties between teams and between managers at the line level, right, or the middle level that you wouldn't notice in a all-up survey that is sort of peanut buttered. You know, you made me think of something. Yes. Tell me what you think of the idea of, so let's assume that company says we're going to have somebody own the employee experience and you don't make them a god, you don't make them a czar, you say they're going to be a resource, they're going to help the company evolve into a more employee-centric, more employee-supportive culture than we've been before, okay? So nobody's got any criticisms about that, no threat. What if that person would then go into the organization? So this is playing off of your insight that some teams are already better off than others. We already know great managers do all the things that we're talking about here. They're way ahead of the curve. So you go out in the organization and you say, who are these people? Who are these managers? Who are these senior leaders? Who are these middle managers? Who are these employees who just get it? And assemble them into a team that would effectively represent a pilot. Yep. And then go and teach them about their technology and teach them how to demonstrate that they care about people and teach them about how often they need to have communications with their employees on a more personal level, career development, how are things going in your life, how can I support kinds of conversation, things that many managers don't know are important and certainly aren't doing. And then you start reporting out to the rest of the organization that this is happening. So you kind of make it an elite experience, you know? Who do you nominate? Who do you recommend? And then you pick those people and then you celebrate them to death so that there's all this insight around the company about, you know, Mary Smith and her fantastic team and the pilot that they're doing and keep your eye on Mary's team because this is what's coming. And then you sort of reinforce it in this really positive way where you're telling people, look at what's happening. You know, people aren't leaving. People are more engaged. Look at the productivity coming from this team. So if this is a long-term game, then commit a year to it and then go out and teach the rest of the organization what you've learned. This is my fantasy based on your one statement. So what do you think? No, that's exactly right. It is an employee-driven team. But the asterisks I'd put behind what you said, so I would say, yes, 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 do everything Mark just said. Yes. The asterisks would be that there are parts of a manager's job that they are not going to be able to fix the greatest pain points employees are having. I'm not saying career development, you know, hearing my voice, feedback is not important. I'm saying all those things are important. That is where that manager can have the greatest influence. But the greatest pain points are in processes, tech things that that manager cannot do on their own. You know what I mean? Because the systems are deployed by the company and the processes are done by the company and the metrics and productivity things and the ways that people are measured and managed are done by the company. It's hard as an individual contributor to have impact on those things in isolation. It's almost impossible because then you start deploying tech on your own and your own team and we know that that's not a good idea. So that's why that collaborative at the senior level has to come together and first define what is a good employee experience. What attributes do we know we need work on? Who are the leaders in those groups? Okay, let's go do what Mark did and set up teams around those topics. Allow the employees to participate in fixing the problems. Bring that together and we start to have a much more comprehensive solution to this issue because managers, you know, leadership, listening, 
caring, empathy, all those things is a piece of it and a huge important piece. But if all those things were in place and those other things were still missing, I think employees would still be unhappy. I've never heard that before. It's really interesting. So you're basically saying that a failure to really truly pin down what technologies are we using? How do we integrate them? And how do we teach people how to use them so that they're not a burden? That's the greatest pain point that people are feeling right now? And processes. Yeah, outdated technology That's amazing. and processes, right? Because I want you to just think about a day-to-day, right? I'm a call center rep. I have an amazing manager, love my team. Takes me 20 minutes to find what I'm looking for when a customer calls and I need to help them. So the customer gets mad. The customer isn't nice to me. I'm not feeling good. Last thing I want to do is like hang up the phone and do it again. I get it. <laughs> but yeah. I got a great manager. I got a great team. I love what I'm doing, but this is killing me. Like, and I'm held accountable to get off the phone in six minutes because that's some productivity metric. Somebody on the 98th floor made a decision from an Excel spreadsheet that that's how long I need to be on the call because that's how many heads and it's a cost center and it has to be no more than six minutes. Otherwise, we're losing money. It's like, okay, but hold on a second. It takes me six minutes to just log in. All right. But if you solve that problem without solving the other problems, then you have you still have a problem. Correct. Right. So correct. Correct. So they have to be concurrent. You've got to teach people how to manage more effectively. And then you have to solve the technology thing. So going back to what you did brilliantly a minute ago, which is to speak directly to the HR people and to everyone listening, of course, what would be your formula? Yeah. So the question I get, right, what next? So like we'll go back to where we were, right? Mm-hmm. Where you said you're going to shoot me a couple of comments and questions and we, what's next? I think the first thing I'd say is, is there a definition the company has around what it means to deliver to employees an amazing experience to work here? What does that look like? And then what are the drivers underneath that employee experience that we know are working and not working? And those things I sort of just shared with you, those five, which, you know, you pointed out you'd been saying minus tech for some time. It should not be like, wow, we didn't know this kind of a thing. In your experience, what's the best metric of this is a really great place to work? Is it turnover? Is it some kind of an employee satisfaction survey? Like what's the bullseye? Yeah, it's a great question because right now what we saw from the research was there is this tremendous amount of effort that employees are having to put forth to do their job. Like, it's a lot of effort for me to show up every day. Like, I'm tired, I don't feel supported, whatever that means, right? So let's focus on effort. So there's customer effort scores have been out there forever. Well, do you have an employee effort score? Could you just mirror that? You're probably tracking NPS for the customer. Do ENPS, start asking these questions individually. What's NPS? NPS is a net promoter score. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Yeah, an ENPS would be an employee net promoter score. You ask them one question, you know, like you get it on your phone, right? You checked into a hotel. They're like, how likely are you to, you know, how great was this? Okay, I'm in a customer service agent and I just closed a ticket. Boom, they get an ENPS survey. How easy was it for you to just close that ticket? Yep. Like that simple. Let's not overcomplicate things. So if you have metrics on the customer side, Do you have similar ones on the employee side? Start with those because, you know, everyone uses different ones. So I don't want to say it's EMPS and MPS. I'm just giving that as an example, right? Customer effort score, employee effort score, net promoter score, employee net promoter score, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, employee, you know what I mean? Like you should balance it out. 
and it should start to tell you where your individual company blind spots are, where you really have these big disconnects between what you thought was happening and what is actually happening day to day for the employee. Beyond the net promoter score, are you a fan of pulse surveys? Absolutely. Like I am a fan of any survey, but what we found from the research was there is no shortage of data. The problem is companies don't know how to use employee data to do something different. Yep. So data collection, serving for the fact of you being able to check the box and go, okay, Mr. and Ms. Executive, I've done an employee survey every month. Aren't I fantastic? And oh, by the way, you know, our employee satisfaction scores are going up. I'm doing everything I need to do. Well, we know that that isn't necessarily always a true statement. And if you blanket it, as I said a while ago, you may have a pocket that's doing really well and pockets that are not doing well. And because the really well one lifts it all up, everyone falsely has this sense of pride that things are going in the right direction and people will game the system. So I think that one, I am a fan of any kind of quote unquote survey or way to a pulse, right? To find out what's going on. Only if you are willing to capture that data, analyze that data, and have the hard conversations in order to fix what the data is telling you. If you're not willing to do that, I would say save your money and don't do the survey. I agree with you. I mean, it's the same thing with engagement studies over the last at least 10, 15 years where companies did the survey and then either shared the respective team's results or the aggregate and did nothing with it over and over and over. And so people are like, why did I bother pouring my heart out? Yeah. And this goes back to what I was saying of nobody, quote unquote, owning it. I don't literally mean that individual, right? But somebody is saying, we've surveyed, what's the data? What are we doing with it? We are going to do a readout. We're going to schedule two hours with the executive team. The good, bad, and the ugly are going to come out. Here's what's going to be said. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's why it has to have, quote unquote, somebody that is then doing that cross-functional touch base to make sure what we're doing is heading into the agreed upon direction. But if there is no agreed upon definition, there is no agreed upon metrics, there is no sort of end state goal of what you're trying to accomplish and understanding where you're starting from, you're sort of running quickly to you don't know where. Well, I agree with you. And I also believe, and I've had people like when I was in the corporate world tell me, no way we're doing that. But I believe in sharing the data. So if let's say you have 100 managers at a particular level, an area level, regional level, whatever, and you are doing some sort of a survey on a level of engagement, level of happiness, net promoter score, whatever, whatever data you're using, and then sharing where everybody lands based on their feedback. And people say, well, I don't want to do that because it embarrasses people. And I said, well, no, it actually might embarrass them, but it also changes behavior. So if you're being held accountable for it and other people are seeing that report, you're going to change your behavior really quickly. And so, yeah, it's painful for people that thought, I'm never going to do this. This isn't important to me. And then they see the report and they see themselves on the bottom. And all of a sudden it's like, well, first you can curse whoever put the survey together. And then you realize wait a minute, I'm being held accountable for this. And I like that. Yeah, and that's why it has to start at the C-suite. So I know you made the suggestion, it sort of starts at the match. That's why it has to start at the C-suite because then you have to have you know, the psychological safety of, look, it's going to be ugly in the beginning, but we're all on this journey together and we're all here to make sure that we get to the other side as a team. And if you're not willing to go on this journey with us and you're not willing to be a little more vulnerable and uncomfortable and all those terms executives don't like, then maybe you're not right to be here because we are going on this journey. And by the way, when you have a culture that isn't willing to do this kind of work, 
how could you ever expect for employees to want to work there, want to stay there and be proud to have leaders? They'll never feel like you have their back. So, you know, I think that this is not only about employees, this is about creating a culture now that embodies these things in a way that doesn't make it feel, oh my gosh, that is so, I don't know, whatever term you want to use, fluffy, like unicorns and butterflies. It's so not us, (laughs) whatever the term is you want to use. I love the positioning of we're on a journey. Yeah. Uh, That is as opposed to, you know, this is where we need to go and how come you're not there? Yeah, this is a journey. That's not the way change happens, right? So if you tell people we're on a journey, hey, we need you to get to the end of the destination here. We, you know, you need to get there, but it's a journey and it's not a direct line and we're going to make some mistakes. But you can share that with employees and say, this is the journey that we're on. We're glad you're part of it. You can give us feedback on it, but we're not going to be the perfect organization tomorrow. Then you have sort of the freedom to, as long as it's authentic, right? As long as it's sincere. So and well said. What you just said was really well said too. So I, I was pleased. I was impressed. Let me ask you if you could like just think. And I've got an editor who will condense this so that it's presented as a as a bulleted list. If you were looking to hire maybe fifty managers, you're hired by a company, and it doesn't have to be a tech company. In fact, it'd probably be better if it's not. And if you were just looking for fifty managers at different levels, but you're looking for certain qualities that you think this is what we need in this moment, what would those be? Take your time because we'll edit them into concise answer. Yeah. So the first one I'd say is I would ask managers, when was the last time you didn't know the answer to something and what did you do to find it? Next, I would ask them, share with me a time where what you thought was the way to do something completely failed, and what did you do? The next thing I'd ask is, give me an example where you spearheaded a collaboration with other leaders in the organization who did not work for you. Next, I'd ask them, tell me how often you meet with your employees and tell me like what that looks like. Next, I'd ask them, what was the last time, tell me about meeting with customers. How often did you do that and what does that look like? I mean, I'd start there. <laughs> just just start there. Because the answers to all these questions lies with the employees. And if you're not managing by wandering around a la Tom Peters in search of excellence, right, then you're missing that opportunity. If you're not talking to customers, you have no idea how your company is being perceived. Look, the keepers of your brand promise absolutely at the end of the day are employees. Full stop. It's not you, it's not your executive team, it's not your logo, it's not your tagline, it's your employees. They live your brand promise every day, your values every day. So if you have a toxic culture, you have a bad shot at connecting that. So talking to customers and employees, I'd say, is absolutely important. The collaboration when you don't own a resource, like a lot of times, Mark, when I say, is this an HR question or another question? People immediately get defensive and go, well, if I don't own it, it's not my budget, not my headcount. All of a sudden it becomes this political grab of influence and power. You've missed the point. So I want to hear how they collaborate. Then I'd want to hear when they have tried something that they were like, nope, in the expert's mind, (laughs) I know what I'm doing, right? In the beginner's mind, I'm open to some suggestions. But in my expert mind, I know this is the way it is supposed to be. And then it failed because I want to hear where they so emphatically set on that they were right. And then they found out they were wrong. And what did they do? Did they 
transparently and empathetically go, I was wrong and do like what you just said, Mark, right? We're on this journey together. We're not going to get it right. Do they have the ability to do that? Are they tuned into that empathetic side of them? The one before that, what have you done in order to find your way through things? I think that it is really about the behavior. I think that's more important than their success. Because, look, you said something a few minutes ago about putting the metrics behind it and changing the behavior. and We're all in this together. It's been proven time and time and time again. When you put unrealistic goals on employees, sometimes it brings out really bad behavior. Wells Fargo, Volkswagen. I mean, we could go on and on, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was really leadership, culture, and metrics driven. It came from the top, go do something that's totally unrealistic. Nobody felt they could push back. That is a bad environment because people are, to your point, they're going to do what they're told to do from a productivity and metric and paycheck perspective. And so if we can set up an environment where it brings out the worst in people, and that doesn't happen very often, I'm, I'm making it extreme on purpose. We should be able to do the alternate, right, where you give them all the reasons to bring out the best in people. So that's what I would ask those questions. I would not necessarily ask about their successes. I would ask about their behaviors of being able to handle change, navigate it, storytell the journey, be empathetic, be open to different opinions, be willing to ask when you don't know something, and more importantly, stay connected to your employees and customers. Okay, love that focus. So Tiffany, I'd like to take a break from our discussion quickly and transition into a podcast tradition we call the heartbeat round. The whole purpose of it really is just to get a better understanding of who you are and what shapes your philosophy beyond what we just have been talking about. So just to pin things down, I'm going to ask you a question and your job is to give me your answer in a heartbeat. You ready? You want to play? I want to play. I'm ready. All right, here we go. An expression commonly used in our workplaces that you'd like to ensure never gets said out loud again. Cultural fit. Wow, cool. The most important lesson you've taken for the two-year COVID experience. Reflection. Cultural value every organization should have. Empathy. One book that profoundly changed your life. The first business book I ever read in search of excellence. The trait you most admire in other people. Uh, Being humble. A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Patience. Your biggest superpower. Storytelling. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Really? Is there anything else? Right? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) laughter. I like it. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. I know the answer. Go on. You want me to go on? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was slow on the uptake. Yeah. (laughs) Very very good. Or or, or, uh, let me say it a different way. Uh, We try. That's not how we do it here. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Your synonym for the word heart. Life. A topic you think we'd all be wise to bone up on. Friendship. And a leader of any genre of any age you think is the greatest example of the kind of leadership the world needs today. Oh, I work for one. Mark Benioff. Very good. So I got to give you special kudos here. I've done this over 90 times now, close to 100 times. And no one has ever given me the answers in a heartbeat. And you did. So you said you wanted to. I know. I say the same thing every time. People are like, well, you know, in respect to that answer, let me tell you a story. So it's all cool. It's just you were very precise, and I applaud that. So thank you. I followed direction really well. That should have been my superpower. I followed direction really well. (laughs) 
before you go, I do want you to, and we've talked about CEOs being the requisite leader here in terms of the change. And you work for someone who's, I don't really know very well, Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce. But he has this magnificent reputation of being, I'll just use the vernacular, my language. He's a heart-led leader. And yet he's running a rather successful tech company. So what can you tell us briefly about his behaviors that other CEOs and leaders would be wise to emulate? Well, I would tell you this. Many CEOs tap him as a mentor to figure out how to do it themselves. So I think that's a great sign. What I would say about Salesforce is the culture at Salesforce now, I think we're 65 or 70,000 employees. I don't know how big we are now. It's been this from day one. And so what's challenging is if you look at some companies that from day one, they led with the heart and they had leaders who led with the heart. That's one thing. If you have a company where that wasn't the case, Mm -hmm. like let's pick Best Buy as an example, right? Hubert Jolet, Mm -hmm. he shows up to Best Buy. They were starting to hit roadblocks and bumps in growth. They brought him in and he was all, hold on. You know, we need to get back to the people, right? The heart of the business. And you have to transform a culture that's different. Unilever with Pullman, right? I mean, same thing. Like it's purpose over profit. Like we're going to talk about these metrics, not financial metrics. Like it takes that kind of rebel to really disrupt things if the culture needs that shock. That's very different than the culture was born in that kind of attitude. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And so I think that if you work for an organization where you have heart-led leaders, and to use Mark's terms, right, and I think after we've talked about this, we all know what that means, that is a perfect opportunity for you to really be able to shore up what we've been talking about. If you don't work for an executive leader or a CEO or a leadership team where that is currently the culture, now you've got a harder road to hoe, right? I mean, at the end of the day, now that's where maybe you have people go, I, I just think it's never going to turn the corner. I want to go work where it is heart led, right? That Which people is what they're saying. I want to go where I feel these things are happening versus staying in this place where I know that's just not what's happening. So I think it's very difficult Look, what we've just been talking about, the journey, it's not easy. It's not easy for leaders to change the culture of an organization of any size. So if you have influence, back to Mark's point, in a group, in a division where you can make a difference individually, that's awesome. Start there. And then to your point, other people will see it. They'll want to emulate it. If you're a leader who has a small division, do it there. Let the rest of the company see the benefit and let it sort of grow and shine that way. I'm not saying give up. I'm just saying it's a very different path than the path where you work for a company where those things are already present. Fantastic. You know, I have people that tweet me and email me and say, I've listened to some of your episodes like two, three, four times because there's so much insight in there. And all the time we've been talking, I was thinking this is going to be one of them for people because there's just there's so many ideas. You have so many great experiences in your career that you brought into this conversation. And I just want to say thank you, Tiffany. Well, thanks, Mark, for having me. I know you were I know you were a little cautious. You were kind of like, hmm, are you right for my podcast? I'm like, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to sell you, man. I want to be there. I want to be there. <laughs> I think, thankfully, you were prodded by a couple people unsolicited by me to get us together. So that probably helped as well. Some big time people, major, major business school professors. So, yeah, I, I listened. I listened. And it was, it's been delightful. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. You bet. 
As we close, our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. I want to thank the team that brings you our podcast, Mr. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and our wonderful producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.